Welcome to Genius Leadership, Overcoming Everything podcast. Join me every week for insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders about their roller coaster ride to leading from their zone of genius. I'm your host, Anna Lieben, and before we kick off, let me invite you to a complimentary strategy call where during 30 minutes we work on identifying your zone of genius and lay out a plan for you to stay in that zone as much as possible. Schedule the call via link in the show notes. And for now, let's take a ride together. Welcome, Genius Leader, to another episode of the show. I'm happy you're tuning in again. Today, I'm going to talk to Chaba Toth. And before I go and introduce the guest to you and what he's doing and what we are discussing in the conversation, I'd love to give a heads up. The conversation you'll hear has been done over int- of the internet and the connection has not been always on our site. So you'll hear a bit of interruptions here and there in the conversation due to technical issues. And thank you, dear Genius Leader, for tuning in and listening, even though the uh, audio experience is not always absolutely perfect. It's just the reality we have in nowadays with being virtual. But on the other hand, it gives me the possibility to have guests from different continents. We already covered three continents, I think. And it's just the beginning of the lifetime or life of this uh, show. So back to Chabatov. He is Hungarian, but has been living in the UK for a long while. And he lost his first business because he thought that speaking the same language, having common sense, lots of qualifications and good intention were enough to lead people and to serve them. Um, It turned out that he was wrong and he lost his business due to conflicts or misunderstandings with his co-founder. And he realized that most leaders, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs were struggling with the same problems. So Chaba committed himself to finding the solutions to the problems that he has suffered from and that he has seen other people uh, being affected from as well. Result of that has been 15 years of work and uh, the creation of the blueprint for why people think and behave differently. This blueprint is called Global Disc. It combines the practicality of the disc model that you probably have heard about with the deep psychological insights of global mindset to bring out the best in leaders and their teams without having to heavily invest time and money in learning the tool, uh, implementing it in the workplace and uh, learning how to live by it on a daily basis. The Global Disc is... Uh, very acknowledged uh, tool to use and the programs that are based on it are uh, multi-award winning and they are internationally accredited and have been already used by fortune 500 companies and national governments and the popularity of the tool is mainly due to the practicality of these programs based on the tool they are uncomplicated but at the same time fun so that it makes it easy for participants to use what they learned and implement it in their life every day. So I want you to pay attention to a couple of the things in the conversation that I had with Chaba. First of all, he's talking about reframing our mind towards change of ourselves or personal development. Instead of thinking of changing ourselves or changing the culture in the organization, think about upgrading. And he talks a lot about the meaning of the words that we're using because of his background in that, in the research of linguistics. And I think it's fascinating how he's t- talking about that. When we're talking about changing something, it by default means that 
that something is not good enough. Thus, we need to change. But if we talk about upgrading, be it ourselves or the culture or the processes within an organization, then we're talking about that it's okay as it is already, but why not trying to get it even better and make it even better? So try and to apply that mind shift in whatever situation you would like to improve. And think about like, I need to change this. I need to change this habit of mine. I need to change the relationship. I need to change my attitude towards something or whatever. Think about, I want to upgrade this X, Y, and Z. And think how, or observe how that will affect your attitude towards it and your progress with it and your commitment to that change or that upgrade. We are also talking about the danger of the comfort zone and generally living up versus staying on the same level as the human being. We go into the conversation of pros and cons of having a coach. And Chaba is giving practical, very clear tips on how you can look for a coach and how you can choose one. What kind of questions to ask, what kind of things to look out for in case you do go into that or do decide to work with a coach. I also love how he's talking about our brain being like Google. Whatever we ask our brain, there will be an answer. So to get better answers, you'd better be asking better questions. We are discussing the diversity and go into the cognitive diversity, which is much more important than than things that are easy to see, like the gender, age, and maybe ethnical background. And Chaba is explaining the cognitive diversity and talking about the motivations for it. So I really liked how he's putting a question out, whether you as a company are doing diversity for PR or for HR. And I think it's a good way of putting it. Think about what is important to you. What's your goal with the diversity? And based on the answer, you can choose how to try to implement the diversity in your company. So there will be a lot of discussions or a lot of topics that we're covering in this conversation. And you'll hear me being stuck sometimes because it was difficult to pick up on, okay, on which paths should we go deeper now? There are so many golden nuggets that Chaba was bringing up. And there were so many things that I wanted to actually say, stop, let's dive into this a bit more. Let's unwrap this a bit more. But I just realized that it was impossible in the scope of the show. Uh, I could have easily had probably a hundred hours of and of the interview with Chaba. But that brings me to an ask for you, dear listener. I want you to get back to me, whether it's from this interview or any other one. If you listen and you think like, but stop, why 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 are you going somewhere else? I want you to discuss this more. I want you to go deeper this. I, I didn't understand. I want to understand more or whatever. Reach out to me. Write to me. I am always happy to invite my guests to the show again. And based on your feedback, go deeper into some conversations, unwrap them a bit more. I just need you to reach out and talk to me. So if you have ever felt that or you feel that during today's conversation, just do that. Drop me a line and let's let's bring those guests on the show again. Enjoy the conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Chaba, warmest, warmest welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'm super happy to have you. And to be honest, I'm usually preparing a couple of questions to have as a guidelines for myself to uh, guide the, or to facilitate the conversation. And with you, I just give up in the process of preparation for this conversation because there are just too many fascinating and very important paths that we can take. So I trust the process and I just believe that we'll find those most important parts in, in your studies and what you do to communicate with my audience. So my first question to all my guests is, what is leadership and who is a leader for you? I think it's a really popular topic and a lot of people have different definitions. To me, the definition is slightly different probably because a lot of people are inspiring to be a global leader before they know how to get along with themselves and with the people around them. And I think that is the foundation. Before you try to inspire millions of people, try to get along with yourself because you can get away from any relationships except for the one with yourself. And often that is the missing piece because if you don't know who you are, what you stand for, and your self-esteem depends on external source of approval, it's a really fragile place. And a lot of people have that problem. So they overcompensate. They have to bully others to feel important or they have to hide to feel safe. And those are not leadership qualities. But that's the most difficult part and the foundation. So leading yourself, that's what you're saying is the most important. Hmm. I'm, I'm so aligned with that. And my practice, I'm, I'm helping leaders in, in their leadership development. And 80% of the work we're doing is actually within themselves. So I talk about the three dimensions of leadership, how you're leading one-to-many, one-to-one, and then dimension of one. And the dimension of one is the most crucial and the one that is mostly ignored quite often. So I really love that you start with that and you say that this is the most important part. You can't really get away from yourself. And when you try to do that, you, you're hurting yourself and the others. Yeah, exactly. Because that's uncomfortable. Because chances are that you find something you don't like. But you know, if you don't face your demons, then you become one. And you, you talk in your book, oh, by the way, everyone listening, tuning in, uh, I highly recommend Chaba's book. Uh, we'll sh- put the sh- link to the, in the show notes that you, it's easy for you to grab your copy. Uh, it's a super fantastic read, very entertaining, but at the same time, very enlightening and given a lot of practical tips. So there you actually try to shift the focus from seeing that the change, we have the resistance to change because if something is not working within me, it means that it's bad. And you're suggesting to reframe it. And let me uh, quote it. You say, how about upgrading ourselves and our environment instead? We're awesome and we can be even better. I really love that. And tell me more about how you're helping people upgrade themselves and their environment. The language is really important because when you tell people or company to change, it implies that they are not good enough and nobody likes that. And often people talk about a huge transformation as if it was really inspiring. But most people hear that, oh no, that's too much work. That's too much hassle. I don't like that. So, you know, immediately they get defensive. So that's not ideal. But if I tell you that you can be yourself, but you can achieve much more with the same amount of energy, you can stop fighting what you don't want. So you have more energy to, to build what you actually want. That's a very different story. It's not, not, nothing is wrong with you. It's you, but an upgraded version. So we focus on understanding who we are, the underlying values and drivers. Because 95% of our actions are driven by values and beliefs we are not even aware of, but we think that we are so objective. And when things get difficult, we try to control the external environment instead of controlling the only three things that we can. And that is what you pay attention to, what meaning you attach to it, and what action you are going to take. Nothing else. So that's all about the mindset. But how do you fix something if you don't know how it works? I can use my smartphone which is great. It makes my life easier. But if something goes wrong, I have no idea how to fix it. And most of the people are like this. 
regarding the mindset because we don't learn about this. We learn about history and maths and physics. And yes, that's important. But mindset is with us 24-7. And it makes sense to learn about it. So how can people start learning about their mindset? First, if you really care about people, then you hurt them. And I know it sounds controversial, but people don't do anything until it hurts enough. So for example, when we do the training, the first, maybe 20-25% is about understanding what is the cost of ignoring this topic and what is the benefit of doing it. Because often they don't know it. So it's almost like running around selling insulin that, look, I've got insulin, do you want to buy it? Of course you don't. But if you let them know that actually you have diabetes, then I want your insulin. So, you know, the awareness is often missing. And that's why I wrote the book. It's not about telling people what to think. It's about helping them reflect on some of those outdated and incomplete ideas that might cause more harm than good. So that would be step one. You realize that you're missing something. We are moving people from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. You know you're missing something. You know it affects you. Until then, you're not going to do anything. One of my favorite saying is, I think it's Native American, that you cannot wake up somebody who is not asleep. And lots of people are like that. But if you lead by example, people can see that you are happy, you're successful, you're not stressed. They ask you, how did you do that? And that's when they pay attention. Instead of running around and converting people that, look, I've got the holy grail. Here it is. I tell you what it's like. That is not very useful. And I see the one example. For my first clients, well, way before I started focusing on leadership coaching, was actually where friends and colleagues who came to me and said, Anna, I want to think like you. I want to react like you in those stressful situations at work. Can you teach me? So it was unpaid work. It was just really out of passion. And I, I saw that, okay, people need what I what I can offer, how like my way of thinking. And that that I would train myself. It's not something that came to me naturally. So that's what we were doing with them. And it was really great example for me to show like that showed me like okay i need to walk my talk and that's the most powerful way what i can give to my clients when we discuss that sometimes incredible. yeah and that that's sometimes very powerful when when they actually get into my brain and they're like anna so this is the situation how should i do and i'm not telling them how they should do i'm saying okay this is how i w- I, i did it myself for example now let's see what do you hear when i say that How do you react? What are the thoughts and the reactions and emotions that come up when we when you hear this answer? And then we work from that because then they get some alternative scenario to reacting. And at the same time, we start playing, okay, what lands for them, what resonates and what doesn't, what kind of resistances they have. So sometimes it's very powerful to have those examples of, okay, this is how I live my life. Let's see how you interpret it. And what of that can you take or do you want to take? And then we teach them how to take that into their life and in their habits. Technically, you described almost the definition of uncommon mindset, because the official definition is that you are able to see the same situation from different perspectives, so you can make better decisions, and then you can choose to respond instead of just reacting. And that's exactly what you described, because we see the world from our own perspective. It kept us alive. Why would we doubt it? It doesn't make sense. It's something that most people need to learn. Yes, some people are lucky. I wasn't. That's why I lost my first company. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was wrong. And it turned out after my research that millions of people have the same problem. So, you know, if somebody is smart, they learn from other people's mistake and success. And I had a fair share of both. If they think they know everything, it's fine. They are free to make their own mistakes and create their own success. That's the idea behind it. Yeah, that's so powerful. I, I want to go get in deep, deeper into what exactly you do uh, with Global Disc, but let's start with those 20-25%, as you said in the training, that you actually describe what people are losing when they're not paying attention to these problems and what are the benefits of actually investing their time and energy into fixing those problems? 
So we focus on two levels. One is individual and the other one is group level. So we have to adjust both of them and the root cause, not the symptoms. And here's the problem that it doesn't matter how much you reflect on things you don't know about, like those, you know, 95% of underlying values and beliefs. You can think about the symptoms, but not the root cause of the problem. You can think harder, but it's pretty much like trying to decrease pollution by increasing the traffic. Try it, but it doesn't work. So we give people the blueprint, and that's important. The blueprint doesn't take away the uniqueness of people, but it gives you the structure to dig deeper with the right information. Because if you don't know the word for something, if you don't know the concept, you're not going to recognize it. Just a symptom. So that's important. And if you look at, for example, the research in terms of how much potential is lost in a company, then 60 to 80% of all problems stem from strained relationships between employees. 60 to 80%. And the top three reasons, clash of values, clash of personalities, and poor leadership. And all three of them stem from the same source, the lack of understanding of why people think and behave differently. So it makes sense to focus on that. And that's why we give them the blueprint. It's not about technology. It's not about policies. It's about people because they clash, because they don't feel safe. And that's where the potential is lost. Or if you look at the interaction gap, 90% of business is interaction between people who think and behave differently. So most companies focus on hiring the best of the best, hoping to create synergy by combining their skills. But in reality, an average 79% of potential is lost because of that. Is that good for the business? Not really. It's all money left on the table. So when we talk about growth mindset, most people think about thinking positive, learning from our mistakes. And yes, that's all important. Because if you don't believe that tomorrow can be better than today, why would you put the work into it? But that's not where the potential is lost. You know, like in the German language, the highest level of praise is when nobody's criticizing you. So what if the highest level of growth is when you stop wasting your potential, when you stop ruining relationships around you, when you stop losing out on opportunities because of friction with people who think and behave differently, and maybe even more importantly, friction with yourself, self-sabotage. And as a leader, an entrepreneur, probably you know what I'm talking about. I do. And it's actually, uh, you're tapping into something very important. We like uh, With me getting into entrepreneurship, they say about the new levels, new devil, new levels, new devils, right? And I feel like no, those are old devils. They just never had the situation to show up in, and that's what I'm facing at the moment. And I have to, like, I had to work through a lot of self sabotage, and I'm still not completely done with that, just because it is a very new situation and where I really need to relearn or like learn about new myself or different parts of myself that I've never used before. Thus, I never like needed to to know about them so now it's really this huge process of getting that to consciousness and actually learning how to navigate that that's quite a process that's when we talk about leveling up and it's very similar to what you said because it's from the gaming industry you know when you play a video game then you go through the level and then you have lots of challenges you learn new skills at the end you have to destroy your monster if you don't you start over if you can you level up and you have a new set of challenges but most people don't destroy that the monster is still alive, so they start over again, again, again. They end up in the same bad job and bad relationship, and then they blame somebody else again because they don't know how to level up. The level is not going to be easier. It's just another level. But that's about fulfillment. And there's no point in blaming other people. It makes more sense to take responsibility for your own growth. That's the only thing we can control. So that's why I like talking about leveling up because it doesn't imply that you're not good enough. It means that it's a never-ending journey. When people say that I've got growth mindset, I'm done. So <laughs> definitely, that's a sheer sign that you're not. Yeah. That's actually something we've discussed with quite a lot of my clients. They get this resistance when they're like, okay, when am I done? And I'm like, never. 
I hope that I'll never stop stop developing because that that's the point of it. That's the beauty of it. And I really need to work with some of them through a lot of resistance of seeing that this is a like, oh, I'm so like it's so tough. Why do I need like when when are we done? Come on. And I'm like, look at the progress that you're getting. Look at the elevation of your lifestyle and, and your thoughts from what you're having. And think about it that it's it's not like like there is always some new level in that, and there is always more joy coming from that and lightness and the ease with life. And this is the ultimate goal for me to just keep exploring and seeing, okay, where can I elevate myself even more? And it's just, um, it's the beauty of it. And it's, it's so important what you're doing, Chaba, with bringing awareness to that and actually showing people how to do it in a fun and easy way. So let's talk about the fun and easy way, how you're actually teaching people to elevate themselves and to level up. I don't know if there's an easy way, but maybe easier. Because, you know, our brain was designed to keep us in the comfort zone, to keep us efficient. So telling you that get out of your comfort zone is like go against nature. You know, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, we are not wired that way. Unless you know that you have to, because sitting in the comfort zone feels good, but is the most dangerous place because the world is changing. Yes, you can reject evolution that no, it's not true, it's fake news. And but the world is dynamic, it's changing constantly. And often people try to protect the status quo, but by not changing, they are ultimately endangering the very thing they try to protect. Because the gap between them and the world is getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to that point, which is the breaking point, or maybe that's the point to level up. And we can see that now. The pandemic caused a lot of hassle, definitely. And I can't remember who said it, one of the scientists, that during the pandemic, in five weeks' time, or six weeks' time, they implemented five years of behavioral change. That's intense. Intense. It's just this horrible. But also it's inspiring because evolution happens under pressure and we have that now. And people used to postpone everything and now realize that they are capable of so much more. But otherwise they wouldn't know. You don't know until you have to be able to do that. You don't have another chance. That's very important. But this is the logic that I would rather walk today so I don't have to run tomorrow. So this is what we can use for coaching, the hierarchy of the pain, because maybe doing something little today is oh, that's such a hassle. Then show them the picture. What happens in one year time if you don't change anything? Compared to that, this is, oh, wow, let me just do this. Now it feels like fun. But often we just ignore the, the future. So that's our job as a coach. Bring back the pain from the future to the present so they can make better decisions. That's, that's how we can do it. Mm, I love it. And I have so many things here to tap into and, and, and go as, a, as the next discussion. But... Uh, I'm just hard, having a hard time to choose. But let's talk about the self-inclusion. You, you mentioned about the self-esteem and how we really need to build our self-esteem uh, within. For me, self-esteem definition is actually that's something that, that's your core, that is not depending on external circumstances. So you talk about that, but then you in your book also write about the self-inclusion, how that is the crucial part of the success of diversity and inclusion in the company. So can we talk a bit more about that? What is self-inclusion? So what you described to me, that would be the self-worth, which is based on facts. I know who I am, and hopefully that's the same level as your self-esteem, the way you feel about yourself, the way you feel that other people see you. And often people confuse the two, and they think that their self-esteem is the self-worth, and that depends on other people around them, and that's really dangerous. So that's how we focus on the self-worth. Find out who you are first, build that solid foundation, 
So you can be wrong because really confident people can say, sorry, I made a mistake. Sorry, I don't know. Insecure people are not going to do that. They're going to attack you or they're going to hide it. And at the same time, how can you be inclusive towards others if you cannot even accept yourself? And we can see this now. That's the real pandemic, that people don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the awareness. They don't know how to upgrade their mindset. They spend much more time on internet. They have a coffee with other people. But when was the last time they spent 45 minutes with themselves without music, without TV, without a book? Just think about who am I and what do I want? I'm pretty sure that most people don't have that. It's because it's not normal. Nobody told them how to do it, but that will be the foundation. So inclusion is important, but it starts with us. Because if you cannot accept yourself, then maybe you can be inclusive towards others, but not, that's not necessarily healthy because that leads to martyr syndrome. I hate myself, but other people need me. I love them. And, and you know, for example, my mom is very similar in that way. She would do anything for us, for her kids, but for herself, not so much. And that is painful to watch. But it's very difficult to change the mindset or to upgrade it when, when you're 50 or 60. And definitely, I know that it doesn't matter how good you are. These things don't work in families. You try to use your knowledge with your family. No, it's a failed mission. So I learned that lesson, definitely. So to me, that's the definition that, for example, nowadays, especially the younger generation, they compare other people's highlights on social media with how they feel inside. And that's a massive gap. And they think that's real. And because they don't have the tools to get by, to get along with themselves, they find it hard to get along with other people. And that's why we should focus on that first. That's self-inclusion for me. Yeah. So what I hear is one of the powerful instruments for that is to just sit down, sh shut out the external world and reflect, write down things, thoughts about yourself and your values, what you want in life, your dreams. Is that what you're suggesting, Chaba? I think it's a good sign, definitely a good start as well, because it means that you are interested in it. And then you spend energy on finding out who you are. Having said that, that's not enough because you still don't understand your own underlying values and drivers. So often people try to change their behavior without upgrading their identity. They don't know what those psychological needs and values are that drive the behavior. And once you find that, you realize that you're not going to change your psychological needs or your values. That's unlikely, or at least it's not a sudden thing. But if you pinpoint the behavior that you use to meet those needs and reflect those values, you know exactly what you're doing and what is the feeling you're looking for. And you realize that behavior is not good for me. Then you can replace it with a more empowering one, a more resourceful behavior. Then it's sustainable. But if you try to change behavior without understanding that, that's going to be a problem. For example, how many people uh, stop smoking? And then, then after that, they start eating and they say, I got fat because I stopped smoking. Nah, that's not really the reason. You were smoking for a reason. What was that? What were you looking for? Was it the feeling of significance because of the ads, the belonging, smoking with other people? Is it the feeling of certainty because you know exactly how you're going to feel? Is it the, the need for variety because you know that it's going to change your mood? Because if all three, at least three needs are met, then it can become addictive. So Think about it. What are you looking for? Why did you do that? And replace it with a more resourceful behavior. Yeah, that's very powerful. I quite often have to do, like, want to do the exercise of ask five whys to dig deeper with my clients. And that brings a lot of, like, they don't like it quite often in the beginning because that really brings, brings them out of their comfort zone. But when they get to that fourth and fifth level, they just see this lighting up. Like, yeah. now we're talking. 
And then it's so much more easier to change the behavior or especially the reactions because quite a lot will start with fear or anger, frustration. And then we start, okay, why? Why? And I just really buzz them until we get to that deeper level. And they're like, ah, and you just see that relief. And, and they just, it's so much easier to change the behavior then because you understand, okay, it comes from your primary uh, needs, like safety, as you said, significance and, and love, for example. Quite often frustration comes from the fear and fear is because you just have some misalignment with the love that you, you feel for those people. And when people realize it, it's so much easier to, to switch it and say, hey, I love you. And that's why. So it just brings a totally different level of understanding yourself and, and your reactions. The challenge is that it's difficult to do it to yourself. And that's why even the most successful business people have coaches. Not because those coaches are smarter. It's because they give them a different and more objective perspective. And I think often that's the missing part because there's this misconception that if you have a coach, it means something is wrong with you. Uh, and I think hopefully it's changing now, but that used to be the perception. What an important point here, Chab. I, uh, like I actually get sometimes this question from people who, whom I'm connected with, connected with potential clients, and they're like, do you invest in yourself? And first time I got the question, I was like, why is he asking? It's so obvious that of course I do. But then I started reflecting, okay, why is he coming from that? And for me, it's really obvious. Like, yes, I'm a coach, but just as with families, we can't really <laughs> solve the problems that we are solving for our clients, for our family members. It's the same with ourselves. Just because I'm a leadership and personal development coach doesn't mean that I do can do it for myself. And ironically, one of my good friends whom I've been coaching for a while, now I still coach her, but sometimes our sessions turn around and she coaches me <laughs> and uses the methods that I taught her for her life on me because she sees that need. And that's the beauty of it. Like you actually, like I, I'm always very open about that, that I always invest in myself because I can't help myself. It's just human nature. And um, what do you think has triggered this shift that you see that you're seeing, seeing that people start appreciating coaching a bit more and seeing that it's not the, the sign of something is wrong with you, but it's actually the way of leveling up what has triggered that transformation. I see a positive and a negative side as well. So the positive side is that the perception is better now. And I think there's more awareness about it. Thanks to the sport, for example, they realize that even the professional players have a coach. And I think even now the business people are more open about the fact that they have coaches because they have very different perspectives. But on the negative side, I think a lot of people got into coaching for the wrong reasons. So if you look at our industry, it's full of cowboys who want to be coaches for the status quo because they want to tell people what to think and how to think. And I think that's the wrong reason to do it. It's a diluted and unregulated market. So you can do a free online course or maybe not even that and you call yourself a coach. And a lot of people are like that. And often the clients cannot tell the difference. They just have some bad experience and they think, this coaching doesn't make sense. It was a waste of money. And from their perspective, they are right. It's true. So it is difficult to create quality and value. And that's why I find it important to create synergy with other people instead of competing. That's the real sign of confidence. Because, you know, we have a lot of meetings and partnership with coaches and training companies. And I have a lot of meetings with individual coaches and trainers as well. And some of them, you know, the ones who teach other people how to be open-minded, how to be flexible, how they should never interact with people. I'm pretty sure they are good at writing books about books, but they shouldn't interact with people. And I think that that's, that's a difficult story, that you don't know who to choose. You don't know why exactly. And often you don't even know what you need. So I've seen so many programs where become a coach. I teach you how to make a six-figure salary, how to create packages, 
but I haven't seen any coaching programs offering you to teach you how to give more value to your clients. Somehow that's missing. It's all about the six-figure salary. That's your business. Yeah, but how do you give more value? And then they promise that you don't need anything. You don't need qualifications. You don't need anything. But it's going to be a six-figure salary. I said, hmm. And that ruins the reputation because even potential clients can see that. And if they don't know if you are that kind of coach or you're a real one who got into the field for the right reasons. So how do you think, or how would you suggest uh, filtering for our listeners and viewers? What do they, should they look for? What should they ask the coaches that they might be thinking about working with just to really avoid that painful experience of, of negative, uh, negative consequences of coaching? I think if somebody can guarantee you results and they promise you anything, something too generic and too vague, that's definitely a warning sign because nobody can guarantee results because you don't know if the person is going to put the work into it. That's impossible. Then I would pay attention to, do they want to serve you or do they want to please you? It's not the same thing. And because of the reviews and you know all those ratings, it's a really gray area because often when you do a workshop, then they rate you based on how entertaining you were, not how good you were, how much value you get, because <laughs> you don't know that, not for at least one or two or three months. It's based on how good they felt, not how good you were. So do you want to serve them or you want to please them? And if you're a really good coach, you have to be fearless sometimes. And you have to be able to say things that they might not like, but ultimately it's going to serve them. And that's where you find integrity and you can hold people accountable. But some people overdo it and they are proud of making others cry. And I know some people like that. I said, every time I have a coaching client, they cry. So is that the ultimate goal? Or is it just a coincidence? Yes, it does happen, but that shouldn't be the goal. So we have to find that balance and you have to know when you're soft, when you're harder. But ultimately, it's not about you, but it's about the client. And everybody can say whatever they want. But ultimately, you find out later on what is true and what isn't. Was it a marketing trick or they actually meant it? So you can look at, for example, case studies, not the ones that they publish on the website because they do what they want. So those are not real reviews usually, but ask people who work with them. And I think that's, that's how we can avoid it. How do you find those people who work with them? It still goes to them. I'm just thinking about my experiences when I was choosing my first coach for business. I asked for, for people, for her clients who I could talk to. And she gave me two references, but it was still filtered by her, right? And of course, then I still can fish out the information to see, is that coach good good fit for me? But it's still people whom they suggested me to, to talk to. I think you can also ask the coach. Because for example, if we get a client and we know that we cannot help them because there's somebody else who can do a better job, I would say that, listen, this person can help you. So if you feel that that's not the right fit, then you ask them, would you recommend anyone else? And if they say no... I think that's not too confident. Or if they can say yes to everything that I can help you with this and this and this, nobody believes that. You cannot be the best at everything. The best coaches have a niche, a very specific niche. And usually that's the one that, you know, for example, I coach a lot of coaches as well to find their niche. And often as it turns out, the best niche, the one that they start with, is the, the most painful challenge or problem they had and they managed to overcome. And that's the niche because they can talk about it in a way that it resonates with the right people. If you try to target everyone, it's not good. The other mistake they make is that they have a lot of different approaches. So it looks like that they specialize in a lot of different topics. And people think, oh, you cannot be the best at everything. But if you put everything under one umbrella and they can see that it's not different topics, 
but you go deeper and deeper. It's the same niche, but you approach it from different angles. That's much more powerful. So when I look for a coach, I would look for a very specific niche. And that's how you would find it. Here, it's again a tricky part when often, as you said earlier, people don't know what they don't know, right? And people don't know what they need sometimes. So how can people, uh, our listeners, explore what exactly they might need and which niche to look for in their case? So usually people don't know what the root cause of the problem is, but they know the symptoms. And if you can, if you are a coach, then nobody's interested in what kind of tools you use, but they're interested in the problem that you solve. So if you can describe that problem using the language that they would use, so they just see that oh, that's exactly my problem, then they find you. But if you try to get too scientific, then they are not going to find you. So imagine that I discovered a cure for brain cancer and I can cure everything. 100%. And I'm writing a lot of articles about it. But if you don't know that you have a brain cancer, you are Googling, I've got a headache, I'm tired, you would never find me. There's a mismatch. Mm. But if I'm a really good coach, I can describe the symptoms so you find me immediately, very specifically. And that's when you connect with the right clients. Mm. I love it. So just we, we talk about some power distinctions, you know, like serving or pleasing. And the other one is, do you describe the condition or the problem? So, for example, if somebody is obese, that's a problem. Or that, that, that's the condition. That is not emotional enough, not personal enough. The problem is that I'm too ashamed to take off my T-shirt in public. That's a problem. That hurts enough. And then I'm going to take action. So what's the difference between condition and problem? So if you can separate the two, if you have a really good coach, your niche is about the problem. Because that's the starting point. That's what people are looking for. That is emotional. Okay. It's, I hope this, this is really helpful for you, Genius Leaders, because if you're listening to this show, then it means that you are interested in the topic of leadership and you are interested in your own development. So this gives you some help on, on to understand how to navigate this space that is quite overloaded. And I'm, to be honest, Chaba, like I'm uh, usually using more consultant than coach because I know that it's a very overused word and I'm not as a certified in uh, coach myself. And uh, it's just difficult to to really label myself in a way that felt suitable for what I do and how I do it, but also not mm, putting kind of different or wrong expectation on on the other coaches, so to say. Like they, there is there is a space for everyone, and there is a need for uh, all the services, right? So it's it's a tricky topic, and hopefully <laughs> this discussion has helped you, genius leaders, to navigate it a bit better for for your own needs. But let's go back to the workplace a bit, Chaba. I would like to discuss the, um, the problem of the managers. And you, you talk in the book about the, the 5% that are the kind of the worst, the least engaged people in the workplace are the middle managers and how this is, that is creating huge ripple effects and creating lots of costs for the workplaces and for, for the systems in general with the healthcare. So shall we talk a bit about that and how to tang, uh, tackle that issue? Yeah. So, for example, if you look at the investment in leadership training, then around 72% of that budget goes to senior leadership and not much goes to the middle management, which is, according to the Gallup research, the most disengaged layer for companies. So think about that. It's almost like a filter. They're filtering information and hassle up and down. They don't belong to the leadership. They don't belong to the employees. It's almost like a filter. And what happens when the filter is clogged? The system breaks down and they lead around 70% of the workforce. They are the ones who should implement the employee engagement and well-being programs, which doesn't make sense because they're already in survival mode. Having said that, this is not a criticism at all. 
because often the best employees are promoted to be a manager, which is a completely different role. It's almost like telling you, you're such an amazing coach, so I promote you and you can be a dentist from tomorrow. And I give you hustle because you're not a good one. That's not fair. So we should focus on that because by the time they become senior leaders, they have a messy baggage. Would it make sense to give them more support so they have less baggage later on? Because if the middle managers are in survival mode and they are pissed off and stressed, then the employees are going to feel it as well. And ultimately, your customers. So the goal is to make your employees and your customers feel valued and understood. And that's the problem with using common sense and good intention, because that implies that everybody's like us. And that's not true at all. And that creates a huge mindset gap. So for example, according to Salesforce, 80% of the CEOs believe that their customer service is excellent. 80%. But if you look at the actual data, only 8% of customers agree with them. That's insane. Now, the problem is that 91% of those people are not going to say anything. They just go somewhere else where they feel valued and understood. The remaining 9%, oh God, let's go on internet, reviews, because angry people are really, really talkative. But if you don't get feedback from the 91%, you don't know you have a problem. So you don't know how to improve it. And that is dangerous. Yeah. There was a very powerful statistics when I read it in the book. I, I, my job dropped really uh, that this mismatch of understanding how, how a customer service is versus how our customers perceive it. It's, it's huge, 10 times. That's just blows my mind. Yet this is th- those mismatches we see so much in, in, the, in a lot of different perceptions within the company, right? Especially when we talk about multi-levels and how it really is different. I, I just remember that during my studies, I was doing some uh, case study with a big corporation and I started project management. So I wanted to review how their program management office is working, what kind of systems they have and so on. And I interviewed uh, one of the top managers in that company. Um, It was a company of 17 at that moment, thousand people globally. And she was on the third level from like second level from the CEO. And then I interviewed a project manager and the comparison was just, or the, the mismatch was completely incredible. She was saying that, yeah, we have all these structures and systems to use and so on. And then he was not aware <laughs> that they were supposed to use those. And that's the, the tragic strategy of what you're talking about with that filter broken or clogged, that the middle management, they, they're too busy. They are in the survival mode so that they can't really communicate well to their employees that, hey, guys, we have those systems, let's use them. How can we use them to actually reach our goals with the projects and so on? And at the same time, they don't have the capacity to report up what's going on and what's not working of those systems. And as you discussed, that those those clashes or those misunderstandings are just like diabetes, right? You you don't notice it until it's too late. Yeah, the silent killer. Yeah, it is. It is so dangerous. So let's let's talk a bit about how how you can actually fix that in the company. It sounds like we need to redistribute the investments in the leadership coaching so that we actually support more. Middle management? Yes and no. So, for example, my research showed that there are 90 or 95% of companies buy and sell people solutions created in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because we love our great-grandparents, but we have very different challenges. When those people answered the questions, there was no internet, no EU, no cheap flights. That was a very different world. Yet, 90, 95% of companies use those models. And we can see the result of that. The other issue is that if you overcomplicate things, people are not going to use it. So if you have 10 different frameworks, which one are they going to practice enough times so they can actually use them? So that already doesn't make sense. The other thing is when you talk about culture and mindset, 
then they sound fluffy because you cannot hold them in your hands. So we focus on the three invisible forces that can make or break a team, and that is cognitive diversity, psychological safety, and cultural intelligence. It's hard to see them. You can see the symptoms, but not the numbers itself. So we can measure and visualize and leverage them. So when you hold your report in your hand, and I can compare your report with me or with the company, and we can objectively measure the mindset gap between what is natural to you and what is normal and rewarding around you, then we create a conversation. And also we make it as objective and tangible as possible because nobody can use the excuse that, oh, you said it because I'm a man or woman or black or white. No, what matters is what's inside of you. And we also give you the language, the vocabulary to be able to talk about it. Because often this is the missing part because people are emotionally charged. They have so much to say, but nobody wants to listen. And that's not really ideal in an environment. So we need the right amount of friction in a company. If you don't have any friction, then it's too slippery. That means that everybody agrees or nobody is brave enough to speak up, equally bad. If there's too much friction, then things get stuck. But you need the right amount of friction. And that's when growth happens. So we need that. But again, we have a power distinction there, which is, is it a relationship conflict or is it a task conflict? So there's a big difference between the two because most people take it personally. They hate each other instead of focusing on the actual task. And there's a problem with cognitive diversity. That, you know, diversity is pretty cool until somebody disagrees with you. After that, what happens? And that's why we hang out with people and we trust people who are like us inside, not on the outside. And we have plenty of case studies to show that, that there's a really colorful company. You can take a picture. It looks good. But is it diversity for PR or diversity for HR? There's a big difference there. And most companies focus on the PR value. So they, <laughs> they employ people who look different, but they think like them. And they have the same tunnel vision as a team, just like as an individual. So that's not good at all. Diversity is just the potential for success or disaster. It depends on how well you understand yourself and others. But again, it starts with you. This is something we need to learn. That's why we focus on psychological safety. Because what if you have a good idea, but you're too scared to speak up? Or what if eight people agree and you are the only one who disagrees? Then, you know what, let's go with the flow. But that's where the potential is lost. If you speak up, are they going to punish you? Or are they going to reward you? Or at least they tolerate you? Because our topic is not a spiritual kumbaya that oh, come to our course and you're going to love everyone. That's not true. The people who promise that they lie anyway. You know, for example, the courses that promise you that I can remove your unconscious bias and judgments. The only people who don't have biases and judgments are the ones who lie about them or the ones who lack a serious awareness. We all have them. The real question is, how big is the distance between your biases and mine and how unconscious they are? So we try to make them more conscious so we can upgrade them. We can optimize them. That's the goal. So there are lots of big promises out there, but they they are misleading. And I think that is a problem. So we have to focus on this, how to create synergy before those differences turn into painful liability. Mm. So much gold, so many golden nuggets here. And I was just jotting down like crazy with a lot of ideas that I want to discuss further. But um, where do I start? I, I really loved what you said, diversity for PR versus diversity for HR. Uh, and you as a company leader need to really be aware of what, what are you going for? And as you said, just the kind of cognitive diversity is so so much harder to measure in some ways, unless people know the right tools. Um, but it's so much more worth the investment in, in it. And I wanted to actually ask you, you have called your tool Global Disk. Yes. 
And you were talking about this, that there are a lot of tools that that were good when they were created, but now they are outdated. And I would guess disk is one of them that is often misused, the classical disk. Why would you choose to use that in your name? It feels like it, it kind of creates a bit of extra hoops to jump through when you try to explain the companies the value of what you're bringing them. So disk is not necessarily outdated, but like you said, it is misused. Because, you know, when I hear that people say that I'm a, a red or D type of person, so I can be rude. Oh, God, that's, that's even worse than not knowing about it. You know, you have to escape your personality trap. That's bad. Or when somebody says that, oh, it's about just putting people in four categories. Oh, I know that you're the bad trainer or you just didn't pay attention. No, it's about speaking different languages and you can use the one that connects with the other person better. So this is, to me, is just incomplete. And the reason is that the psychometric and behavioral models explain how the different personality types tend to behave if they are not influenced by anything or anyone around them, which never happens because you can put different people in a team and they conform to certain norms. So that disappears immediately. So the DISC has been around for 90, almost 100 years. But the concept of the four personality types, that's been around for two and a half thousand years. Started with Hippocrates, with the four temperaments, And since him, hundreds of different researchers came to the same conclusion. We are all a combination of four types. And to me, that's an amazing foundation. So if you look at the intercultural field, then there are a lot of models. And most of them were created in the 60s and 70s. But most of them are not intercultural models, but international models. Mm. Because they focus on one cultural group out of many. And that's the country of origin. And they completely ignore the other 15 or 20 that we all belong to at the same time. So I think that's important when you move to a country, learn about what people are used to. But if your success depends on how well you understand those people, they can be truly misleading. So there's a problem there because more than 80% of cultural differences exist within countries, not between them. If the country-specific approach was correct, there would be no millennial issue. That's just another cultural group, not a surprise. We know that already. So all of those models just point out the statistically average national differences, and they are widening the gap instead of building a common ground. So we focus on the only layer of diversity that has proven benefit in terms of performance, and that is cognitive diversity. And it's a very different approach. Because if once you realize that we are all a combination of the four personality types, but we were conditioned differently by our environment, it becomes much more manageable. Mm. And I can show you a lot of case studies where an international team is much more homogeneous than a random local team. And it's not a surprise because you don't choose your gender, generation, or country of origin. But even if you are completely different, you learn how to navigate efficiently in that environment. So it's important to understand the dynamics there. So answering your question, a lot of companies use this, around 70% of Fortune 500 companies. A lot of companies created their own versions, like Insights Discovery, Everything Disc, TTI Success. They all created their own versions. They can trademark it, and they can all claim that theirs is the best one. Fantastic. One of them might be correct. I don't know which one, but all of them are missing the cultural intelligence part. And this is why GoBoDisc is important because it gives them the 50% that's missing from theirs. So the idea is that, you know, when, for example, you come up with a new medicine, people don't want to take it. What they want instead is the one that they use and trust, but they want a stronger one. So technically, this is what we can do. We can introduce the topic of cultural intelligence using the language of this. So we can speak the language they understand and we can build on what they already know. And that's repetitive learning. That's how we can make it as uncomplicated and practical as possible. Mm -hmm. So instead of asking the question, which is more important, personality or culture? And by culture, usually they mean nationality. Because it's the wrong question, there's no right answer. 
So they have this illusion of separation. But if you talk about individual and group mindset, then you can see they are compatible. You cannot even separate them because your personality determines how you want to behave and your environment or culture determines how you should or technically have to behave. That's why you cannot separate them. But when you have too many different models, then your clients walk away with more confusion than ever before. And that's not helpful to me. A framework is practical if you can use it in real life without asking the other person to take the assessment so you can read the report before you talk to them. So I'm not going to say if a model is good or bad, but is it serving that specific purpose or not? And often the problem is that they promise much more than they can deliver. When you invest in intercultural training and you get an international one, I would question that. So that's why I wrote the book. Read it, ask better questions so you can make better decisions for yourself. It doesn't mean that you have to work with us. But you can go back to your provider and you can ask them the right questions. Because if you're a lawyer or accountant, you have to be up to date in your field. If you're a coach or a trainer, you do what you want. You can sell half a century old solutions claiming that, yeah, yeah, it's still up to date. Of course, trust me. So many companies used it. Yeah, but what about the result? That doesn't matter. So many companies. Sure. So if you have that faith in the provider, that's unethical not to be up to date. So that's why I never want to stop. Like you said in the beginning. It's almost like being a shark. He stops swimming and you drain, you drown. So it's that kind of attitude. It's a never-ending story. And it's a beauty of it, right? Yeah, I I hope that the the listeners, without seeing you, see uh, like feel the passion that you have in this topic and really uh, understand how much you have dedicated yourself to to this topic because it's so important. And um, I'm I'm really grateful that people like you exist who actually make the complicated things simpler. It's not necessarily easy to implement them. It's still work. And that's the thing that you can't guarantee the results, that it will work in the workplace or for the person. But you give the, the framework that actually make it so much easier to or simpler to, to understand and more inspiring and more fun to, to go into that process, to dive into it and really get the transformation going. So Chaba, if people want to learn more about you and what you do or about the cognitive diversity, where would you guide people? The best option is if we connect on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect with everyone who is interested in the topic. Or the website, which is icq.global. And we have regular webinars every month, the Uncommon Sense in Unusual Times. And we also have the Uncommon Mindset Bootcamp, which is four days, four times 90 minutes. It's, it's full on, very personal, very practical. It's open to public. And we deep dive into the mindset and we find some of those demons and we realize that we don't have to fight them. We just have to find better ways of feeding them because that's the problem. You start a war in your head, even if you win, you lose. So that doesn't make sense. So let's find better ways of meeting our needs and reflecting our values. So we give people the techniques, the strategies, and also the insights. Great. We will, um, I will put those links in the show notes that people can easily find that. And as I said, I will also link your book because I think it's a worth read for sure. Uh, Chaba, I usually finish up with two more questions. One is, what would be your three greatest pieces of advice for the genius leaders tuning in? And it can be about anything. Okay. The first one would be, learn how to lead yourself before you try to lead others. And I know it sounds really simple and obvious, but it's not. Not in real life. Because every time we work with senior leaders, they get passionate about leading others. And when I tell them that day one is about you, they're surprised. I said, listen, I promise you don't know a lot about yourself, but it's not even your fault. So let's focus on that. So that would be definitely the first one. The second one, think about if you want to be right or you want to grow. And there's a big difference there. Because when you have a disagreement with someone, 
then the default position is that if I know I'm right, then it's obvious that you are wrong. So especially if there's no trust and safety, then I have to convince you that I'm smart and you're not. I win and you lose. Instead of realizing that you are right from your perspective. So if I can ask you the right questions, what can you see that I cannot? What do you know that I don't? And you can do the same thing. Then we can make better decisions. And again, the language is important. So maybe this can be the third one. That if there's a disagreement, then don't try to make it binary. Just ask. It's not about, is it your solution or mine? But is there an even better way of doing things? You can ask this question yourself or other people. Is there an even better? Because that also implies that whatever you do, it's okay. Because people do what they consider right based on what they consider true to get the best outcome they think they can. So it's not about criticizing anyone, ever. You do your best. But the question is, is that an even better way of doing things? You know, is it, if it's yours, fantastic. It's mine, fantastic. If it's a combination, good. Let's do it. But we are doing it. But for that, you have to be secure. You have to be confident. And that's where self-inclusion comes back immediately. Because if you are not, then you have to protect your opinion and your ego, and then it goes downhill. And I think it was Peter Kronz who said that, that uh, being right is a poor person's self-worth. So you can say that, yeah, at least I was right. But did you get what you wanted? No, I was right. That's a horrible person. Wow, well done. So <laughs> let's aim for higher level. Yeah, I really love the question that one of the coaches who have has formed me a lot, Mia Turnblom, she's also been on the show in, in the first, she was my first guest. And she's usually saying, do you want to be right or do you want to have the change? And that's what you're talking about as well, right? What, it, what could be the even better solution? And I really like that turning because it takes the judgment out. Yes, unless the people are triggered by change. Yeah, okay. Because, because here we have to think about the distinction because sometimes you mean a small change, a tiny one, but what people might hear, painful, big one, too much. So that can be an issue sometimes. Because change... okay, and now I'm translating from Swedish because she's Swedish and um, it might be a bit lost in translation. She's more thinking about the transformational thing, which yeah can also sound big, but I like the idea of really focusing on your why, why you're actually getting into this dialogue. Last question, Chaba. One practical tip that our listeners and viewers could implement today after listening to the show. As then I have to repeat this because probably this is the foundation. Next time you have a disagreement with yourself, because it happens much more often than we would admit it, or with somebody else, ask yourself, is there an even better way of doing things? The reason why I'm saying it is because your brain is like the Google you know, whatever you look for, you find it. How come my life is so bad? You're going to find the answers. But if you ask the right question, the quality of your life is uh, directly proportional with the quality of the questions you ask. And you are in charge of the questions, but often we are too subconscious. We are running on autopilot. So we keep repeating the same stories. So try to do that. Is there an even better way? And you will be surprised that suddenly you realize that, wait, I'm getting the answers. Where, where is it from? Well, <laughs> you learn how to use your mindset. And that's a very good start. Yeah, I love it. And um, as you say, it's a lot about the language, right? And then the question that we use, the better questions can give us better answers. Chaba, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm really happy that you found your time and grateful for, for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me. And to all genius leaders, let's tune in and talk to each other next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Genius Leadership. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button to not miss an episode. And to help more people become even better leaders, rate and review our podcast and share it with your communities. Remember, I'm always here for you.
and I'm happy to connect with you on LinkedIn or via email or hop on a strategy call. Genius Leadership is an honest conversation about leading yourself and others. And it's my honor to be your guide in overcoming everything.